Hello and welcome to the Sky Time Podcast with me, Simon Cousins. This is the fourth edition of the podcast that aims to share information and experiences within the Sky community during the COVID-19 crisis. In a few weeks, Sky Time will chart the transition from lockdown through the recovery phase as we celebrate all the people, places and providers that make Sky such a great place to live, work and visit. This is a special edition of the Sky Time podcast to coincide with the resumption of Parliament in Westminster. My guest has spent much of the last couple of weeks of lockdown lambing on his Sky Croft. But we are more used to seeing Ian Blackford in the House of Commons holding the government to account as leader of the SNP at Westminster. Ian has been described by a common speaker as a fastidious member of Parliament, representing Ross, Sky, and Lachaba. Ian, welcome to Sky Time. Good morning, Simon. It's a pleasure to be on with you. Now, firstly, has lambing gone well? You couldn't really have asked for much better weather. <laughs> well, I think anyone that's uh, that's been involved in lambing know what it's like. There's there's ups and downs, but it's. I mean, I have to say, I really enjoy it. So. The reason that lambing always takes place in the parliamentary recess is because I do plan to be home for, for those two weeks, and it's it's my favourite time of the year. But you've got to you've you've got to keep your eye open twenty four seven, and I'm afraid whether it's with the the first year yows that are given birth or the more experienced ones, quite often you have to you have to get your hands dirty. That's perhaps the polite way of putting it, and you always hate it when you when you lose one. It's kind of personal. That kind of joy of new life is. It's fantastic. And the fact that unusually that for lambing, the weather is good is, is just a joy. So we're about two thirds of the way through ours. And it's just it's just fantastic to see the, the lambs and the, the mothers enjoying the, the, the new birth. It's a, in a way, it's a it's a distraction from the from the day job. And I, I hope it's one that people will, will forgive me for. <laughs> yeah, sadly, we have to come back to, to the C word. What's yeah. your assessment of how the, the UK government has handled the crisis to this point? Well, there's been lots of questions about this, particularly in the in the press over the course of the last few days. I would I would really say to everybody, Simon, that what we need to do is actually focus on where we are now. Uh, let's make sure that we can actually get through this as well as we can. I understand the calls for public inquiries, and I think it's probably inevitable that there will be public inquiries, and we'll go over everything which has happened over the course of the last few months. I I, I actually, and maybe some people might be surprised that I'm saying this, I don't want to get into a blame game. We, we will have to go back and, and learn lessons, but let's make sure we look after people. Let's make sure that we try and do the right thing. And I suppose what, what I would say for me, the single most important thing here is that we've got to work together where we can, all of us uh, collectively. And, and, and I think people rightly will judge us badly if we don't. But secondly, I think the importance that I would put to the situation is that we have collectively as politicians, as governments, we have crashed the economy. And we've crashed the economy because that's the right thing to do, because we've got, first and foremost, to look after the health of the population. We've got to stop the spread of this absolutely dreadful disease. But there's an obligation that goes on government as a consequence to that as well. When the rule book's thrown away, because what we now have to do is that we need to make sure that everybody is protected financially, whether that's businesses or whether it's individuals. And and let's be honest, there are gaps in the system, and I'm trying to work with with governments to make sure that we that we plug those gaps, and I would have to say, and it's uh, I, I just been honest with people that I I don't see an early exit from this. 
there isn't a solution to this virus. The only way that we will have a solution in the end is if there is a suitable vaccine which is available. And I'm deliberately using the phrase suitable vaccine because this is going to be very, very difficult to get to that point. And it's very much going to be a bumpy road over the course of the next few months. I don't know when lockdown is going to end. I don't know when we're going to return to anything that anybody would call normal, whatever that normal is going to be, because it's going to be different. But certainly for those in, in the tourism sector in Sky and Lacalche, I absolutely fear for them. And I know that livelihoods are at stake. I know businesses are at stake. And we've got a responsibility to work with the sector, not just this sector, but all sectors, to make sure that we don't end up losing capacity in the economy. That would be that would be an outcome that just simply wouldn't be acceptable for, 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 for any of us. So there's a lot of work to do over the coming period, and it's about making sure that we can take these right choices, and we have to work together to do that. Do you think that the Scottish government have used their devolved powers effectively enough to, to shore up the economy? <laughs> well, it's a good question, and it's a, it's a big question. And again, it's a, it's a topic which has been covered in the press. I suppose a lot of people have said, why hasn't the Scottish government done exactly what's been done in the rest of the United Kingdom? Now, first and foremost, I would say, well, that's why we have devolution, so that we can deliver our own responses to our own situation. But there's been an enormous pressure on making sure that we're delivering the same kind of package as the rest of the UK. But of course, the economy is different, the shape of the economy. And actually, if I'm, if I'm really honest, I think the way that support has been doled out to some businesses has been perhaps a knee-jerk reaction, actually, rather than thinking through a need. Now, I get the point that for government, it's 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 an awful lot easier just to have a kind of one-size-fits-all and says, right, certain businesses will get 10,000, certain businesses will get 25,000 pounds or whatever. I think, actually, we've got to be more nuanced than that, and I think we've got to look at need. And obviously, some of the difficulties that we've had in Scotland are because of the unique characteristics of the of the second home situation. And it's about making sure that those that are not running businesses are getting the benefit that those, that those running businesses need to get. So have we got everything absolutely spot on? No, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say I don't think we have. I think we've, we've, we've done a we've done a decent job of it and we've tried to make sure that there is flexibility in the system and having the emergency funding in place but I'm not I'm sitting here as I am today I'm not going to say that everything is everything is right we need to make sure that we do get to everybody and when it comes to the UK government I, I want to see more on the retention scheme so that those that have taken on seasonal workers are included and I'm I'm pretty angry with what the Chancellor did last week and he knows that because I've spoken to him about it and I and, and I want to see further change on the basis that I think the retention scheme is a very welcome uh, introduction. It's something actually I push for, and it will stop that more of a dramatic rise in unemployment that otherwise take place. But then there's also, of course, the issue of the self-employed as well, and that needs further work. Now, I've come to the view, and it's not something I would have advocated previously, that given where we are, because the real requirement is to make sure that everybody gets some cash, that people don't worry about doing the right thing in terms of complying with the lockdown and everything else. And on the basis of that, in order that everybody's captured, I am now a strong supporter of a, a universal basic income. I think it's the right thing to do, simply to make sure that everybody everybody gets something. So there's more work to be done on this today, tomorrow, over the coming weeks, but we need to move relatively fast on this. You mentioned a moment ago uh, the issue of second home ownership in Scotland. Mm. And last week we spoke to Fiona Campbell of the Association of Scotland Self-Caterers. And she mm-hmm. was saying this is really not the time to be focusing efforts on clamping down on second home ownership. It's about shoring up the economy. And she's really concerned that Kate Forbes has made 
some of the, the decisions based on this campaign? Um, I don't think she has. And, and, and of course, the way government works is an economic subcommittee of the cabinet, which consists of four cabinet ministers, the first minister attends as well. So it's not just about Kate making these decisions on her own. Of course, she will come to her own judgments on these things, but she'll take advice from other people. I think it's about recognising that there are people that are running businesses, that their livelihoods are threatened by what has happened and they have to be supported. But it's how do you make that distinction between someone that's genuinely running running a business, trying to create a future for themselves, or someone that has a, a second home and is trying to benefit from the system. And I think there is a difference. It's not about it's not about demonising any of these people, Simon, far from it. Well, and let me say, in a kind of, if I kind of broaden it out a wee bit, because I've been pretty vociferous in driving home the message that people should not travel. We shouldn't have non-essential travel. And of course, the guidelines are very clear that people shouldn't be travelling to holiday homes. They shouldn't be travelling to second homes. They should stay in their primary residence. That's not out of any badness or anything else. That's simply because... We need to do all we can to stop the spread of this disease. And of course, when this is over, we all want it to be over as soon as possible. Each and every one of us will welcome people back with open arms. We want them to come here. That that Highland hospitality that we're famous for, we want people to be able to experience. But we have to do the right thing in the here and now. And I'm afraid that if that means that people have got second homes, that they mustn't come here just now. One of the big issues facing the tourism sector and Sky is this whole issue of the small business grant scheme and the fact yes. that businesses with a rateable value of over £51,000 are excluded from support here. We are hearing that many of these businesses are facing going to the wall unless this arbitrary level of 51 k is changed. Mm-hmm. Do you think that will happen? We cannot have a situation where larger businesses in the tourist economy are going, are going to be going to the wall. It would have a devastating effect on the Highland economy and it simply wouldn't be acceptable, Simon. So, of course, we need to get round the table and I think colleagues in government would accept that as well. It's a question of how this is done. In all these things, there's always going to be cutoffs for very good reasons because it's about how you best spend the resources that you've got. And, of course, the money that the Scottish government got to spend came through what's called, as you will know, the Barnett Consequentials, and it's how you divide that up. One of the things that the government does accept, and that's why the, the £100 million has been put aside, is that we need to look at things on a case-by-case basis. Uh, of course, a lot of these businesses will benefit from other schemes, in particular, a lot of them will benefit from the job retention scheme, albeit I think there's more has to be done on that. But I think it is important that anybody is in that situation, that they're speaking to the local authority, that they're speaking to the Scottish Government, and we we cannot have a situation where good businesses, that through no fault of their own, because of the lockdown, find themselves in a perilous situation. I think, in a broader sense, Simon, your members might be aware that there has been a economic recovery task force that's been put in place just over the course of the last few days. That's been headed up by a guy called Benny Higgins, who was the guy that was given responsibility of establishing the Scottish Investment Bank. Benny has a, a long history in, in banking, and he's he's been joined on that task force by Professor Anton Muscatelli. And I'm very pleased, in fact, pleased is an understatement. I'm delighted with both those appointments. I've spoken to Benny on a number of occasions over the course of the last few days. And this obviously needs to engage quickly into a lot of thinking as to what we need to do to support the economy as we come out of this phase. And of course, the tourist economy will be an important part of that. This task force has to report back by June. So it's in a relatively short time frame, And I'm expecting Benny to make appointments to that task force over the course of the coming days. So there'll be a variety of ways that those in the industry can 
make sure their voice is heard, whether it's talking to government directly, there will be a, a part to be played with this task force uh, through HIE, of course, as well, and through uh, the councils. And of course, many of many of your members are lobbying me directly. I've spoken to many of them on an ongoing basis, and I'll make sure that uh, their issues are being represented at uh, government, whether it's here or whether it's appropriate with the Westminster government as well. The idea that, that good businesses, because these are good businesses, should go under as a consequence of what governments have done is, is something that we have to take very seriously and we need to make sure that we do everything we can to endeavour to see that that is not the case. You've mentioned the word nuanced and it's certainly a word that applies to the tourism sector. Do you think that Westminster and Holyrood truly understand the nature of a seasonal industry? That's a good question and I would I would have to say being candid, given my, my conversation with the Chancellor last week, no. And, and and let me just explain that. One of the things I have expressed, and I'll say again, is that I do want to work with the, the, the UK government. I do want to make sure that we can all agree that we have to cover off any of the of the areas where people are not being fully accommodated for. And I, I have been pushing over the last few weeks to get the date of the retention scheme changed. When I saw the date of the 19th of March being announced last Wednesday, I thought, great, they've listened. And it's only when I saw the small print that I realised we had a problem. I was pretty furious, and, and I'm, I'm being polite. <laughs> and I immediately phoned Boris Johnson's chief of staff and demanded a, a meeting with the Chancellor for what would have been last Thursday now. To my surprise, actually, he phoned me that night. And all I can say is that we had a, a fair and frank exchange of views. And I said, look, we, we, we have a responsibility to everybody. We're talking about people that have got a contract of employment. In some cases, they've started work. But because you've imposed this deadline of the 19th of March to be on the payroll and notified to HMRC, thousands of people are going to miss out. And this is a huge issue. And I explained to them that in the Highlands, where a lot of tourist-facing businesses would take staff on for the beginning of the holiday period, which is traditionally around the, the, the Easter holiday period. And his response to me was, well, they can look at universal credit. And I had to say to him that I, I thought that was absolutely astonishing that he wouldn't accept his responsibility for what we had done and that responsibility that I believe that everybody has to be looked after. And I did explain to him that on the basis of that, that he and I would be falling out because I did think it was a an abrogation of responsibility. And I'm not I'm not going to let go in this one, albeit I know that we're up against it to get this changed, but I'm, I'm certainly not going to stop. Do you think it was deliberate or an unintended consequence of no, things I, I having mean, to be done on the I hoof? I wouldn't say it's deliberate because I know the answers he gave to me and what they're trying to do is they're trying to make it as easy as possible. I think it's two things. They're trying to make it as easy as possible for HMRC to manage this. And secondly, they're trying to avoid fraud. Now, both of these things I understand, but it's not that difficult where someone's actually started work, where there's a paper trail, where there's a there are email correspondence in almost all these cases on the employment of the individual. And I get that that's a manual process, but that's the responsibility that you have. In your conversations with uh, Rishi Sunak, the, the Chancellor, have you said to him or reminded him of uh, a quote from very early on in the crisis where he said that no viable business would go bust because of coronavirus? Do you think he would repeat that now? Um, well, that's a good question. And, and one of the things I'm pleased about with Parliament going back on, on a virtual basis tomorrow then we've got that opportunity to make sure that we are holding the government to account, not just me, but other MPs on a cross-party basis. And we have to remind them on that over the course of the next few weeks that we, we need to step in whether it's appropriate. You know, I think when you kind of broaden that out a wee bit as well, and you look at what's been done on the 
the loan guarantee scheme, the £310 billion. Well, that's great. But my question to him would be, how many companies are in a position to take on more debt? And we are going to have to think about what is the mix between loans that are available and where government has to intervene directly with grants. And I think that whole debate has got to open up over the course of the of the coming period as well. It may well be, as a consequence of where we are, that the state has to, in effect, become a become an, an owner of part of these businesses, not based on any ideological position, but simply because that's the responsibility that we have. You mentioned Parliament reopening. It's going to be a virtual sitting of Parliament. How is that going to impact on our politics? Well, to use a well-worn word, and I know it can have a, a number of connotations, it will be interesting. Um, I hope it works well. I think there's a, a real willingness across the House to make it work, and that goes for all the parties and indeed for the House authorities, and in particular the Speaker. There will still be the mechanism where MPs can attend the chamber, although that's limited to no more than 50. I mean, I would encourage members to do this on a virtual basis. I think we have to create a, a level playing field for this. And we have an assurance that there'll be no preference given to those in the chamber. It will be on the basis of equality or participation, whether you're participating on this on a virtual basis or whether you're there in reality. We've got Prime Minister's questions, so let's see how see how that goes. And I guess by the time a lot of you people will be listening or watching this, that will have happened. But I hope it goes without a hitch. I will give you an interesting aside. The, the parliamentary authorities, because of my position as third-party leader, they're trying to make sure that I can broadcast in, a, in an effective and an efficient manner. So they're sending out some additional equipment to allow that to happen. And the House of Commons authorities sent a, an email to my uh, head of uh, office and said, does Ian operate off satellite broadband or fibre? And I said, for <laughs> heaven's sake, can you tell them neither? It's copper. <laughs> we're, we're in the West Highlands. So I am on a bit of a wing and a prayer that this is going to work. And I'm going to absolutely have to get the system upgraded so that I can communicate the way that I need to. But we'll deal with that over the course of the coming weeks. I do suspect, by the way, that this is something that's going to go on for quite some time. It's not going to be one or two weeks. I think this is going to be for a for a sustainable period. So we're just at the beginnings of this journey as far as working in a virtual parliament. I know that work is underway to make sure we can vote electronically, which actually is something many of us have been pushing for for a considerable period of time. I and mean, as, you, as you'll know, that's what happens in the Scottish Parliament. Voting takes no time effectively, whereas in Westminster, it takes us a minimum of 15 minutes for each vote. And you can have eight votes, or sometimes even more, actually, in an individual session. So you could waste up to two hours a day doing nothing other than voting. It's nonsensical. And the opportunity to come into the, what I would probably euphemistically call as the real world would be would be most welcome. Now, those of us who are trying to keep in touch with family and friends using Zoom video conferencing know how difficult mm. it can be sometimes with uh, four, five or, or six people on the on the same call. I understand that there will be up to 120 members of parliament on a Zoom call at any one time. Yeah. How That's on right. earth are you going to have your voice heard? <laughs> well, because it's all going to be organised and it will be managed by uh, the central production team down in London working with the Speaker's office. So, 
What happens anyway, so maybe I should explain this, when it comes to, to Prime Minister's questions, there's an order paper. So members of Parliament ballot to be on that order paper. And there are 15 uh, that are taken as of right through that process every week. Then you've got the leader of the opposition and myself as the leader of the third party. So the leader of the opposition gets six questions, I get two. And it always has to go back and forward. And you will, you will, most people will know that members of parliament will what's called bob to try and catch the speaker's eye. Because he's trying to do it on a, a equal basis, it may be that there's the potential for a member to be called on a random basis by bobbing, but not very often. So that bobbing element will be, it'll be much more difficult for that to work. So those that will be called in Prime Minister's questions will be those that have come out of the ballot. And I always know when I come. So there'll be question number one. So if question number one comes from the government side, then Jeremy Corbyn gets his six questions. It then goes back to the government. They get one. And then it comes to me. I get my next two. If it's a Labour member, it'll be Labour, Tory, then Jeremy. So I always know when I'm going to get called. And I'll be waiting for that moment with my my two questions, in this case, to the standing Prime Minister. And it will be exactly the same in departmental questions. So we'll all be organised before. Members will know when they're going to be called so they can be they can be ready for their moment at home in front of their laptop or whatever else they're using to communicate. So when you do get to challenge government, what are your key priorities? Well, obviously, first and foremost, it's making sure that, that we're all working collectively together on the health front. I think it's important to do that. So that goes without saying. And I should say that that's not just for us as parliamentarians at Westminster. All the devolved governments are working very closely with Westminster as well. But where perhaps I can be effective, particularly when it comes to the tourism sector in Sky, is by talking about the gaps that still exist on the economic front and the protection that has to be put in place for businesses and individual. And I don't think the government, in saying that, because I don't, I, I never like to signal my questions to the government, but I, <laughs> I think they could probably pretty well guess what I'm going to ask them tomorrow. The seasonal businesses on Sky are, are facing what's been described, I think, quite poetically as a triple winter with no income. Mm. They've just come out of the winter. Yeah. We're in a, a winter now during lockdown, and then they'll go back into another winter. Are you convinced that the government will be committed to supporting these businesses until probably this time next year when the tourist economy might start to bounce back? We've got no option. And I don't think there can be any dubiety on that. So, I mean, let's take the retention scheme as an example. When the retention scheme was announced, what was stated was that that would be for an initial three-month period, but it could be rolled over. Now, what's been done in the interim is it's been extended by a month. I know this is expensive, but the costs of not doing this are actually greater. Uh, and actually, when, when I met with the Prime Minister, when I was lobbying for this before it was announced, and admittedly this was a couple of months ago almost now, and I made the point then on the analysis that I'd done that if we didn't do this, we'd be looking at unemployment in the UK of 6 million. Actually, I think I was probably on the cautious side. I think it would have been higher than that. And I had done some analysis because the data's actually in some cases better than some of the other countries. And I, I gave him the example of what could happen in Spain and France and Portugal and Ireland. And I also painted to what would have been an absolutely horrific position on budget deficits as well. But this is a unique set of circumstances, as I mentioned earlier, because of what we've done by stopping the economy. And we've got to make sure that businesses and people are supported. We've got no option to do that. Now, I fully accept that there's the price to be paid for that. And we're going to have to look at what happens with taxation. It's also the issue about how we can grow the economy post that as well. And I'm not suggesting for a minute that will be easy because there is the question of what happens to capacity. But we are actually going to have to have some pretty fundamental discussions about how we do grow the economy in a sustainable way. Because I would 
I would argue that right around the, the Western world over the course of the last few decades, that you've seen a decline in underlying investment in the economy. There's been much more of a shift towards share buybacks to dividends. Taxation policies obviously has got an important part to play in that. And we really need to think about how we can actually make a difference in terms of delivering a higher sustainable rate of economic growth. Because in the end, if we're to deal with the, the debt mountain that we're going to have out of this, then we have to find a way to pay for this. And there will be lots of hard choices that will have to be made in terms of what happens to tax, what happens to business tax and, and all the rest of it. There'll be, a, there'll be a lot of change. But in the interim, in the immediacy of what we face, governments have simply got to make sure that we keep the tax open, whether that's done through fiscal policy, that we've been talking about, but actually what we haven't really talked about as well, monetary policy. And I think the Bank of England has done on balance the right things as well. But we have got to make sure that we... We sustain the capacity within the economy. First and foremost, that's the obligation that we have. What does the recovery phase of this crisis look like to you? In, in other words, how do we move away on Sky from the stay away from the Highlands message to the we're open for business? Well, I think all of us have a huge responsibility to get the message across when it's safe to do so that we are open for business. And obviously, the industry body, Sky Connect, and others as well, have got a huge part to play and there is going to have to be a a public campaign to get that message across and i'm i'm not suggesting simon that that's going to be easy i don't think we've ever we've, well, certainly we've never faced anything like this the, the, the closest thing i can think of is probably the oil price shock in 1973 because that certainly made a big difference at that time because of the the, the cost of, of of petrol and what that meant so in a sense, I think we have become the kind of go-to place over the course of the last few years. We cannot make the assumption that that will remain the case. We have to fight for that. And also, I think we have to recognise that, OK, businesses are going to be in a constrained position coming out of this, but so are individuals. And so that, um, that affordability issue is, is going to be quite important, making sure that there is that demand from the consumer to travel. So we can't take it for granted, and I certainly would be cautious about saying that we'll get to the kind of numbers that we've had over the course of the last couple of years. And we all know that capacity rightly has been built in the system on the basis of the, the numbers that were coming here. There's been investment in, 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 in the product that's available. There's been investment in infrastructure, rightly so as well. So we are going to have to work hard to, to make sure that people, that people are coming here. And I guess... When we talk about the economic challenges that people face and the economic challenges that you put it about having a, a prolonged winter, what does concern me isn't just about the, the going through that phase, but it will be in the recovery phase as well, because a lot of businesses are going to be cash flow constrained. And you might find that a number of companies get into difficulties, not just now, but as we go into recovery, if they haven't got a proper handle on the receivables in particular. So there are, there are lots of things that will still continue to concern me when we go through that recovery phase, uh, as well as the phase that we're going through today. Michael Gove conceded the other day that hospitality would be the, the last sector to come out of lockdown due to mm -hmm. social distancing issues. And uh, it makes sense. I mean, table service in restaurants, for example, doesn't yeah. work with social distancing. There has been a suggestion that if we can get to a stage of increased testing, that we could have some sort of COVID-19 passport that allows UK-wide travel. Do you think something like that is feasible? I've got to honestly say to you at the moment, I don't know. I mean, I've obviously heard these things. There's been lots of suggestions that have been made. You know, one of the things I would say, if I, if I look at 
the tourist businesses, whether it's here or whether it's elsewhere in the Highlands, I think that almost everybody has has behaved with a in a manner which is is quite remarkable, and and particularly given the financial cost to businesses and not operating. And I'm 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 really so grateful that people people see the bigger picture here. That in the first case, it's about health. And I think when I look at what's happening here, I look at the statistics that we see from the spread of COVID-19. In some senses, we have been protected from the worst of this until now. But my point would be that we cannot afford to loosen off on the restrictions that have been in place. And I had a, a long conversation last week with, amongst others, Paul Hawkins, the CEO of NHS Highland. And I have to say that I think NHS Highland are doing an absolutely first-class job in preparing for this. But I don't think any of us are under any illusion, given where we live, that if there was to be a surge in COVID-19, my goodness, we would be in trouble very, very quickly. And that fact that we're such a long distance away from the only acute hospital that we have in Moor. So I hate to say, Simon, I'm cautious. I'm cautious and I'm worried because I think we would have to, one would have to do things based on science. And I think we would have to do things on a softly, softly basis. And it may well be because of things that are happening in other countries that we can learn from experiences elsewhere. But I'd be very worried about going too far, too fast, and then exposing the Highlands and Islands to risk. And I, and I do get for businesses that want to think about, can we save any part of the season this year? I really, really understand that. But I, I really ask everybody to recognise the scale of the problem that we have in front of us. And we have to do this on a careful basis. Now, if there's a way that we can unlock, if there's a way that people can be allowed to travel safely, of course, we should do so. I don't think we're anywhere near that point at the moment. And I must caution people that although the government are in a series of what I would probably call rolling three-week lockdown periods, I I see no evidence that the lockdown is going to come off in the very near term. And I would certainly anticipate that the current three-week lockdown will be rolled over at least into one other one, if not more. And as you rightly say, even if we start to see some effects of of lockdown coming off, I suspect that that's something that's going to take a long time before it affects the hospitality sector. And presumably that's going to affect local people's attitudes to visitors. There's quite rightly going to be a a degree of fear about people coming into the community when they are allowed to. Yeah, well, thank you, because I think that's a that's a really important question. And I mean, I've been pretty dogmatic about saying to people, don't come. But what I would say that even even in that context, there are essential workers that still have to come here. And in some cases, they've been appearing in camper vans, although they've now got signed on them saying they're essential workers. And it's important where, uh, where people will perhaps have fear, suspicions that we that we treat people as we'd expect to be treated ourselves. And we have to be respectful as to why people are here when they're here for legitimate reasons. I mean, the substance of your question is that that's why we've got to do this in a way that takes everybody with us, takes the community with us, and that we can feel certain that when we take these measures off, that we're doing it from the perspective that we're not fearful about a new wave of the COVID-19 virus hitting us. And we've got to make sure that as we do that, as we come through this, that that traditional Highland hospitality is on offer. And we make it absolutely clear that we want people to come here, that they're welcome to come here, but we've got to get the timing of this of this right. And I think it's maybe easy for me to kind of say those words, but we've got to make sure that we get the communication of that right and that everybody buys into that. And I think there will be there will be a a, a time to reflect 
not just on how we've done this, but perhaps more broadly in some of the things that I talked about, about sustainability, about inequality, which I think is important in all of this. The worth of those that are in our front line, who often tend to be some of the poorest paid in society. There are many, many, many huge issues that will come to the fore, I hope, as a, as a consequence of this. And we've got to, I hope, look at those with a, with a fresh eye. Ian Blackford, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of the Sky Time podcast. If you have a story to tell or a subject you want covered, please get in touch. Simon at simoncousinsmedia.co.uk You can also email me if you'd like to sponsor or advertise on the podcast. Until next time, stay safe, stay home and stay in touch with family, friends and neighbours. Thank you, Bob.